One, two, hello. There we go. It's good to see everyone. What a treat to see at least half of your faces today. That's a blessing. Uh, so we are going to be meeting in person from now on, uh, starting like the Wednesday ladies Bible study uh, that Jones leading. We also have the Friday nights, the Wednesday nights by at the Roches is going to be online. Is that correct? Still debating, but it's online at the moment. But Fridays, we'll be meeting here with Solid Youth and the Word Bible Study. So come out for that if you like. And uh, we'll continue to live stream Sunday mornings um, just so people can stay connected and the Word can go out if uh, you're not able to attend. So we'll be in Job 14. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your truth and for your holiness, that you are a glorious God, a savior and a redeemer and the one who, who has loved us with an everlasting love, the one who is altogether wise, who has all authority, the one who is exalted above all things and help us to come to a place of recognizing your goodness and your power over all. And thank you that you have defeated death. You have uh, remove the power of sin to condemn us and to control us. And you've given us new life through Christ. Thank you for the transformation you bring in the lives of souls saved by grace. And thank you for the gospel. And I thank you for the encouragement that we find even in the midst of Job's struggles and troubles. And Lord, we come to you troubled ourselves. We do have troubles. We do face difficulties and unknowns and things that will weigh us down and cares and burdens. And we come to you today, Lord, casting them upon you because you care for us. And I pray that you would quicken us to hear your word and to apply it to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're talking about trouble, that you don't have to be in trouble to be troubled. Trouble, there's variations of it in the Bible. It occurs about 200 times in my version. Jesus was troubled leading up to his arrest and crucifixion. So being troubled in itself is not a sin. And we think sometimes, I wouldn't be as troubled if I knew the facts. But sometimes knowing the facts is troubling. Like we can be troubled by anything. Uh, Webster defines trouble as disturbance of mind, agitation, perplexity. Some of our troubles happen to us, like car trouble. Some things happen inside of us, like heart trouble. Almost all of our troubles, though, they impact our minds. Webster goes on to say that it is calamity, affliction, inconvenience, annoyance, uneasiness, vexation, that which gives disturbance. So all this is happening in our heads. You can have heart trouble and be at peace because you know your Savior. You know that there's no need to fear death. Now, we can know things, but it doesn't mean that we're actually entering into it by faith in Christ. And we can be troubled because other people are troubled. Herod, it said that he was troubled when he, the wise men came to him and asked about the king of the Jews who had been born. And it said he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. They were all troubled because he was. Mary, she was troubled at the greeting of Gabriel. Martha was troubled by much serving. Job was troubled by calamity that came upon him. He lost his health, his wealth, his 10 children in a day. And 
We don't have to trouble, be troubled like he was to be troubled by many things ourselves. Think about a gentle breeze. It can blow across the surface of a vast lake and trouble the whole thing. And it doesn't take much to trouble us. A little dust in the air, it stirs us to sneeze. We have a what if thought in our heads at night and it can drive sleep away from us where we're not finding rest. And an awesome truth about God is that when we're troubled, we don't have to be troubled in mind because Jesus Christ is a savior. Psalm 46, one through three, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. So the whole earth can be troubled. The waves crashing, the earth, I mean, the mountains thrown into the sea, the earth be removed. That's some serious trouble, trouble like we've never seen. But it says we don't need to be troubled because we're not afraid because God is with us. He is our refuge and strength. Now, it's likely you have been troubled recently. Maybe you've even heard something troubling today or you are troubled today. But by faith in Christ, we find rest for our souls because our Lord is sovereign and he loves us and he's gracious and good. And this is a, a message we see from the book of Job. So Job 14, starting in verse one, man who was born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man, he finishes his day. In the previous chapters, Job had mustered up some courage to bring his case before God. He had this burst of confidence like, you know, I, you guys aren't listening to me, but I want to speak to God about this. I want him to hear my complaint. Life was a terrible struggle for him. He was sitting there in ashes, scraping himself with a pot as he has these oozing boils that are incurable. He knew that God would vindicate him, but he didn't see that happening anytime soon. He felt like he had been put in the stocks, like he had been personally ruined, that he was being publicly humiliated, and he hadn't even been told what he had done wrong. Like he hadn't heard from anyone what his sin was, and yet there he is, troubled and suffering, and God was silent. Job chose to pour out his complaint, and he says, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Man is full of trouble as are his days. Like a flower fades, like shadows flee away. Job, Job was struck with the brevity of life. It's measured by days and months. It's interesting, he doesn't say years here. He just says days, months, the limits of man, just a few months, just a few days on earth, and he's gone. Only God knows how many days and months we have. But we know we can face, we will face troubles. Eliphaz had said previously in Job 5, 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You've been around a fire, a campfire, and seen the sparks fly up. And it's like man is born to trouble. It's like as necessary as a mom is for a child to be born, trouble is necessary for a person in this world. 
And it's interesting that we also have the capacity to trouble others. You guys like to push buttons, certain people, you know how to get a rise out of someone. You don't have to learn that. There's skills in life that you, you work hard to learn, and you, even if it's your passion, you may not be great at it. You love pottery, and the things you make, they don't really look like pots, but it's, it's something you want to get better at, or you're baking. You want to bake, and so you, you're trying all the different kinds of flour and all the recipes, and you're just not able to get the perfect thing. And, but you don't have to practice to cause trouble. We need to learn to not cause trouble and not to be troubled by others. Because we can be troubled by people who aren't even trying to do that to us. I mean, we are easily troubled. And Job asks, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. David, he wrote in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. They acknowledge the sinfulness of mankind, that it's impossible to cleanse ourselves of sin. It's impossible to uh, remove our corruption from us. Imagine for a moment, you open a bottle of spoiled milk. Okay, it's all curdled up. It's got, you open it and, ooh, there's a smell to it. None of us would say, you know, let's give that a couple of days. Then it'll be, I'll use it in my cereal or coffee. It's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. And so is man. Left to our own devices, left in our sin, we are corrupted and become more corrupt. And Job's just saying, this is the end of man, death, trouble, difficulty. It's, we don't become more pure over time. And he's saying, I wish I could just have a rest away from the scrutiny of God. A laborer is done soon enough. In those days, if you wanted, um, you were paid by the day on the day. So you'd show up at the crack of dawn. You would work, let's say in a vineyard, like in the parable Jesus told. And when the sun went down, that's when you were paid. And so he's like, I am going through hard labor this life is difficult and my day is drawing to an end. I just, I just want to rest. I just want to be departing this life that's troubling to me. Verse 7. For there is hope for a tree if it is cut down that it will sprout again and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Job is not holding out any uh, hope for recovery or revival. He's saying there's more hope of a tree that's cut down and just the stump is left in the ground of that having a little rain and sprouting up again than I do of being revived, of being free from this trouble and torment that life had become. And you've seen this. You've, you've gone past, like, let's say in, in the bush where there's been a fire and everything is just blackened with soot. And you come back in a few months and there's green just shooting up everywhere where the nitrogen is just given life to these plants that were, they looked to be dead. They looked like they had no life in them. And depending on the variety, some trees can, their roots actually keep growing for years after they've been cut down. And I read of a recent study in the Auckland University of Techno Technology. They had seen this stump that was like alive, but it had no green growth. And they're thinking, well, how is this thing staying alive? And it turned out it was, had interconnected root system with other trees of the same kind. And they were using it kind of as a storage 
point. So that the stump was actually alive and without any green on it because uh, the roots were connected with one another. They had, just like they get in, like they're very opportunistic roots. They'll just go for miles to get, I mean, that's hyperbole. They'll go for meters and meters, 30 meters to just a little bit of water. And they'll just say, where is it? In your sewerage pipes and break everything apart. And, um, but he's saying there's no hope for a man like that. When a man dies and is put in the ground, his, his body molders away. His bones turn to dust. Where is he? There's no chance of him rising again or walking or talking again. A lightning strike isn't going to raise the dead. A little rain won't make that difference. And so he's speaking from a human perspective, an earthly perspective. He had buried people. and He's like, there's no hope for them to be alive again. Man breathes his last and is gone. That damaged tree and turf can be revived. But with man, death is final on this earth. Job 14 verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. Job was like, instead of facing the wrath of God, I want to be hid in the grave for a season. That's at least a quiet place. Wake me up when this is all over. When all this trouble's gone, when this pain isn't so bad, then call out to me and I'll answer you. When that sentence of hard labor was served, he's saying, Lord, remember me. And he's willing to wait until my change comes. It's really interesting the words he uses here. Like that stump that looked dead, but could spring back to life. And God would call him and desire the work of his hands. And who was the work of his hands? Job. He had fashioned him in the womb. And he's saying, when you call me, I will answer. I will come forth then and live. And he, he said, I don't want my sin remembered or brought... Um, I don't want it to be uncovered anymore. I want it just to be sealed up. And when he says, remember me, doesn't it remind you of the thief on the cross who called out to Jesus? Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. That's very strange that he would say that because it's a dying man speaking to another dying man that he had a kingdom that the thief could be brought into. And as a bystander, not thinking of spiritual things, you're thinking, you're going the way of the earth. You're going to die. And he's dying. What kingdom could he possibly have? But with eyes of faith, he knew that he was the Lord, the Christ, that he had a kingdom, the kingdom of God, and that he would bring him into that place. And Jesus said in Luke 23, 43, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There was a change coming for those men who were crucified on Calvary, that they would put on incorruption. They would put on immortality. They would put on eternal glory and they were going somewhere. They weren't just going their bodies to the grave, but their souls were going to the presence of God into paradise forever. So in Christ, we find an answer to the question Job asked, if a man dies, shall he live again? The answer is a resounding yes. 
in Christ. We live again. The voice that called out to Lazarus after he had been dead four days and said, Lazarus, come forth, and he did, has called each one of us. And we've responded to our risen Savior like Thomas, who said, my Lord and my God, when he saw Jesus standing there with the nail-pierced hands and the pierced side and feet. Through the gospel, we can be born again. You can have a hope in this life and for eternity through Christ. We don't have to wait until we depart these corruptible bodies to be changed because the power of God is upon all those to be born again, to be reconciled to him, to be made friends with God through the Holy Spirit who fills us. We have passed from death to life. We have been changed, but we also will be changed when we are like him and see him as he is. Now, the scriptures have a lot of little hints of people being changed, like Moses, when he went before God and he communed with him on Mount Sinai, it says his face glowed and he covered himself with a veil because people didn't even want to go near him because it was a bit startling to see his skin glowing. King Saul, he was another man. It says that God gave him a new heart. He became a new man and started prophesying with the prophets, something that Saul had never done before. Jesus, he was changed on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says his face shone like the sun in its strength. And after Jesus rose from the dead, the Jewish rulers looked at the disciples and said, these men, they are bold. They were with Jesus. There was a boldness in them that was not there before. When Stephen, when he was brought before the Sanhedrin to give an answer for his faith in Christ, Acts 6.15 says, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. This didn't mean he was like super handsome or like a chubby cherub all of a sudden. Just like. It maybe speaks of the brightness of his countenance, the joy on his face. The, the Bible describes the faces of angels like lamps, their eyes burning like, like burning lamps. Or Samson's mom, she describes an angel in Judges 13 as very terrible, which means awesome, adapted to impress dread, terror, solid, solemn air, and reverence. So there was something about him that was striking. It was very different as he gave an answer for his faith. So the spiritual work that God does within us through faith in Christ it is to be experienced practically. It will be observable by others and it will be enjoyed by us eternally because God transforms us. And before the gospel is written, David, so the gospel is everlasting. It was, it was planned from before time began and yet it was revealed in the person of Jesus. It was a mystery. It was something that was not known that has now been revealed that we can enter into. David wrote this in Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. That is marvelous. What faith to say, this is my future. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Like one day you're going to wake up and you will be in the likeness of God. You will be like him. You are a child of God, born again through faith in him, but you will be changed. You will be like him. And David knew that even before he had all the gospel laid out for him. 
In the New Testament, Christians who pass away, it doesn't ever say that they died because uh, they would never taste death. We're raised in a glorified body. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says this, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait for him. He's going to transform our lowly body that will make it like his incorruptible body, the body we see Jesus have after he raised from the dead, that could eat, but didn't have to eat, that could pass through walls, that was uh, the most real thing the earth had ever seen, that body. And God, he provides the satisfaction that Job longed for through Jesus. We have that, that Job didn't. He didn't have these promises. He didn't have this scripture that we're reading now. Think about the things we long for Sometimes our trouble, our pain, fatigue, and hunger, also our prosperity, our wealth, our health, it can bring the worst of us to the surface. There's so many people that are fed up with this world, not realizing there's a life with God that can be lived right now, that you can know God, you can be accepted and received by him. There's people that hate their lives. They hate others. They wish for death when God has the power and the will to give the hope of eternal life to all who trust in him. To have that glory with him forever. It is a remarkable thing and it should never get old. And God puts in us a love for him and others and gives eternal satisfaction that this world cannot offer you. It cannot deliver. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you answered the call of Christ to come to him, to cast your cares upon him? Job 14, verse 18. But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it and his soul will mourn over it. Job talks about water eroding mountains and stones and his hope of escaping the trial or finding comfort. He's saying, God is destroying my hope. My hope of escaping this, my hope of recovering from this, it's gone. And if water, if a drip of water can wear away a stone, which is far more durable than a person, how can my hope endure when it's God who's destroying it? His only hope was in God, but he thought that God was against him in this. Now we know something Job doesn't know because we've read chapters one and two that Satan had come against him and said, Job will curse you to his face. You've blessed him. You've protected him. But remove that from him and he will curse you, God. And God, knowing that Job was only going to be refined as gold, he wasn't afraid to put him in the crucible of suffering because he knew he would only be better for it in the end and glorify God. And it would be for his good and ours as well. We benefit from this. 
It's one thing to hold out hope, but if God destroys your hope, what hope can you have? And that's what Job is saying. Job is speaking from the heart. He's overwhelmed by trouble. We have to remember this. Uh, It is good for God to destroy our hope if we place it in man, because it's a false hope. Man is weaker than water. And we may be ignorant of many things. We're ignorant of things now. And Job is saying, like when a guy passes away, he doesn't know what will happen to his kids, whether they'll be promoted or whether they'll be demoted. And it gives him pain to not be able to see that or to know what's happening. But we don't need to mourn over what we cannot know. If we place our faith in God, who is good, because he is a better father to my children than I could ever be. We can rejoice in God we know who exalts the humble. The gracious God who clothed his only begotten son in human flesh and allowed him to suffer so we could be redeemed and reconciled to God. Forgiven, born again, made new, transformed, raised from the dead, brought from death to life, and never forgotten. Remembered. Continuing in Job 15, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Now we'll see Job's friends uh, in order bring their second address before them. And this is Eliphaz speaking for the second time. And he begins by questioning Job's wisdom, saying that his words were empty, unprofitable, and could do no good. He, he was the nicest and the most kind and gentle the first time around. And it seems like his patience is wearing a bit thin. And... Uh, Like the east wind, it was a hot wind. It was not a wind that would help your crops. It was going to dry you out. He's saying, your words are like vanity. They're they're without profit. It's just hot air, Job. And he criticizes his tone that he's questioning God at all. Because in questioning God, he's only condemning himself. In verse 4, he says that Job cast off fear, which relates to casting off fear of offending man and even God in pouring out his complaint. And he says that his lack of restraint led Job to restrain prayer before God. Now, in defending himself before man, it's possible that Job was restraining prayer before God. Maybe he wasn't praying to God as much as he ought to because he's complaining before people. Now, if this is true concerning Job, I don't know. But... The point that Eliphaz makes is a good one. If we neglect prayer before God, it is a a terrible error. We can make it our priority to air our complaints to others, right? You have the opportunity online to leave a review and you can complain. Or when you are talking to um, an associate where you've had some poor service or you'd like to return something, you can complain. If you have a spouse, you can complain. If you have children, you can complain. You can complain to them about them. You can complain to them about your husband or your wife. 
You, you can turn your complaint to all kinds of things instead of God who actually has the power to do something about it. Because a lot of the time we're complaining, we're talking to someone who can't change it, can't change us, can't change them, can't do anything to help. And yet we feel vindicated because we've complained, right? We've poured out our complaint. We've let it be known how we feel. And that has its, that has its value. But this complaint, it can spring from the flesh. We live in a, in a world full of trouble, full of problems, full of sin. So it's likely that our complaints can be valid. You will have valid complaints. But do you take your complaint to God first? Is he the one that you pour out your complaint to? Not hopelessly, but saying, Lord, this is the situation. And I'm powerless to do anything about it. You're the only one who can change them. You're the only one who can change me. We complain because we want someone to change or God to fix a problem. But no, God wants to change you. That's why he allows these things. It's one redemptive purpose of things that we might complain over. It's the very thing that he will use to change you and make you more like him. To get you more in the mindset of trusting him and relying upon him in the future. When we bring our complaints to the Lord rather than a person... As we trust him, he purifies our motives of dealing with people and the situation. Because there's a lot in us to clean up as well. As much as we see the problem being out there and with them, there's a lot in us that God wants to address. And well, this is always the case when you live in a body of flesh. We need to change. You can't change yourself, but God can transform your mind. He can renew your mind. So by the prayer of faith in Christ, we endure, we, we experience hope that endures because it's not dependent on our circumstances changing or other people changing. It's in God who, who has all things in hand, who knows all things already. And now because we trust him, we brought our complaint before him. We've poured out our soul to him. We should always show restraint in complaining but we ought never to restrain prayer before God. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. And know that Paul wrote these things while being imprisoned after being falsely accused of crimes. So Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. See if you can pick up on this tone here. He's, he employs. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, as I read this, the first takeaway for me is he doubled down on the worthiness of God to be rejoiced in regardless of circumstances or the trouble that we're in. Paul was in trouble with the Roman authorities. He was in trouble with the chief priests and Pharisees. He was probably in trouble with some Christians as well. But he rejoiced in the Lord. He says, again, I say rejoice. 
Rejoice in the Lord. He's not saying rejoice when you're in prison. Rejoice when people hate you. No, rejoice in the Lord. The Lord's the one who we rejoice in. And he says, see that your gentleness be known to men. Not bitterness, not complaints, not harshness. And then he says, the Lord is at hand. Let's not overlook this. The Lord is at hand. This is why, because of who God is and his proximity to us, he's right with us. He's not far away where he can't hear us or respond to our cries. He's with us. He's at hand. He's right here. Rejoicing in the Lord caused Paul to draw near to the Lord and the Lord drew near to him. He heard him. He was able to help him. So here's the one, the Lord, the one who is in charge, the one who rules, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's the one who's at hand. So why be anxious? Why complain when God is at hand and able to do everything? We're like, oh, okay. And we get to live this out because we believe that this is true. The Lord is at hand. He's not afar off. He's not ignorant. The res- What's the result then of rejoicing in the Lord? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So rejoicing before you're out of prison because you're rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing before the trouble's over because you're rejoicing in the Lord. And then the peace of God guards your hearts and minds. It protects you from the lies of the world and the lies of even your flesh or the devil Because you are protected and guarded by God, by his truth, by his power. And you don't have to speak to a person or an angel to cut through the red tape to get into the presence of God. You have an audience with the Almighty who assures you of his protection and his perfect peace. You can rest there. You are safe in his hands. Job, he feared God. He did good and he suffered. 1 Peter 2.20 says, when we do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Isn't it amazing that God would commend anything that we could do? But he commends this. This is something he takes notice of. He looks upon that and says, I like this. This is really good. This is excellent. Like us, Job struggled to take these difficult situations patiently. It's hard. In fact, impossible. We can't be patient when we're in pain, when we're struggling. Our patience has limits. We get to the end of that at some point. No matter how patient you are, your flesh, it has an end. It was only by God's grace that he was enabled to endure and overcome the devil his wife saying, curse God and die. His friends who were accusing of sinning without any evidence and physical pain that his body was throwing at him continually. Would you rather complain before men or be commended and favored by God? This word acceptable, it's not just scraping by. We're like, your room cleaning today was acceptable. That's like, it just is enough. But acceptable in God's sight, it's something he rejoices over. It's something he has favor towards. He says, this is good. And I want him to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You trusted me. 
Job 15 verse 7, are you the first man who was born or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray haired and the aged are among us much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you and the word gently spoken with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? Now, Eliphaz heard what Job said, but he could not know Job's heart. Job's friends, they all began with the faulty premise that Job's pain and suffering were due to God's judgment upon him for his sin. The belief of Job's guilt coupled with their ignorance of God and God, what God was actually doing, it stripped them of compassion and righteous discernment. It's like if you are sitting a math exam and you wrote down the wrong equation from the board and you, you could never come to the, the correct answer, right? It would always be wrong because you, you missed some key elements of that formula. And so... No matter how well you try, you're going to be wrong. And so they started with this premise like Job is being punished for his sin. He deserves this. That was their mindset in speaking to Job. And so they were harsh. They weren't gracious and compassionate towards him at all. And they were impatient with the things that he was saying. Eliphaz was wrong about Job, but he asked some probing questions that the wise do well to consider. King Solomon, he was a wise man. Wiser than any who lived. He knew God. God had revealed himself twice to him. He could recite thousands of Proverbs. He wrote books of the Bible. Yet wisdom did not prevent him from playing the fool late in his reign when he was led away to idolatry and to wealth and the love of many women. And so Eliphaz brings forth these series of questions now about the way that Job is talking about God. And he's saying, is this wise the way that you're talking about him? As if you know more than him or you know more than others. As if you are the sole authority and source of wisdom, Job. Is that wise for you to talk this way? Have you conversed with God in person, Job? And at this point, Job had not had that conversation that would have toward the end of the book. And he's saying, there's people who are older than you. There are other wise men in the world and are you overlooking the consolation of God? Are you refusing to receive the truth that he's spoken gently to you? So these are things that we should think about in the way that I speak and the tone that I use. Am I giving God the respect and honor he deserves? Are you being carried away by your sorrow, Job? Are you turning against God? Very good to think about that. Am I being carried away with my emotions or my feelings? We can get carried away. I don't think there's anyone here who has not been carried away at some point. You are carried away and you said something that was very rude and you regretted it later. Or maybe you justified it, but you got mad. You were upset. And maybe it was in a passive aggressive way, but you got carried away. You felt things that were, you felt it was very real when it wasn't real. We can act like our problems are too big for God. And we're like, oh no, God's the greatest. He can do everything. Yeah, but in this case, you're acting like it seems like your perspective is God is helpless. And he's hopeless to help you. And that's not the case. 
It's like we can think that we know what God does not know, and we claim to know what God should do right now. Like if I was God, I would do this, or I would do that, or I'd deal with it this way. But there's God. He's at hand. The Lord is at hand. I am not the Lord. You are not the Lord. The Lord is there. He knows what to do. If we remove God and his goodness, his mercy and his grace from our situation, we come to the wrong conclusion every time. Because that's who he is. He is altogether good. He is gracious and compassionate, full of mercy. He is a savior and a redeemer. And unless we keep remembering this, we lose track and we, we go our own way. In verse 14 through 16, what is man that he could be pure? And who is he who is born of woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. Job had denied the accusation that he was in sin. And Eliphaz countered, like compared to God, how can you say that you're righteous? How could you say that you're good when everyone has sinned? Eliphaz had previously quoted a spirit from a vision in Job 4, 17. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Job wasn't saying he was more pure than God or more righteous than him, but that he was not guilty of the sin that Eliphaz and his friends condemned him for without evidence. Even those who served in the, the tabernacle and the temple needed sacrifices for their sin. Even the priests, the ones anointed with the oil, they required sacrifice. So David, he agreed with Eliphaz in Psalm 1, in 14, 1 through 3, where he said, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. David wrote another passage in Psalm 53 that's identical to this. God looked. There is no one righteous. There is no one that measures up to him. All descendants of Adam born of women are sinful. That is, except Jesus. Because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he did not follow along the pattern receiving that sinful bloodline of Adam. He is the second Adam. He is the one who gives life. Adam's sin brought death. Jesus Christ brings life. And so he's saying, who can be pure born of a woman? Jesus. Jesus is the only one. So he's the only one who can save us because he was sired by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, who is God in the flesh. And this is, this is the awesome truth of the gospel that Righteousness cannot be earned by trying to do right or by avoiding sin. It's imputed by grace through faith in Christ. What's impossible with man is possible with God. There's no man who's going to have a son or daughter who could say, my child is righteous like God is. You only need to be with them for a little while before you realize, hmm, not like God. Because God is perfect and holy and righteous. He's gracious and good. Imagine having Jesus as your child. That would be so eye-opening. Mary kept a lot of things and pondered them in her heart as he just says something. Like, oh, okay. And we can all ponder those things in our hearts. 
People born in sins can be born again, made as pure as Christ, made as righteous as him because his righteousness has been imputed to us through faith in him. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him as righteousness. We who are sinful and will own that when we repent and trust in Jesus, we are cleansed and forgiven and pure as Jesus is pure, as God is pure. And so we can answer this question in that way as well. Who can be pure born of a woman, born of flesh? Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ can be born again, made new, forgiven without the shame and the guilt and the horrors of sin. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.10, we are not ashamed of our savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, that the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. It brings life to people who are dead in sins. It makes the condemned righteous. It brings peace through to troubled hearts and minds. And so if you'll receive the salvation of Christ, will you receive that peace in your trouble? You'll receive the one. Will you receive the other? Will you receive the forgiveness of his? Will you receive that righteousness he's giving you, imputing to you, crediting to you? Not because you've done anything, but because of what Jesus has done for you to purchase you. And Jesus has made this comfort available to everyone and all who face trouble as it's written in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Why don't you turn there? We'll just close in this passage. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Let not your heart be troubled, believer. Believe in God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God is our refuge and strength in trouble. And this passage of Job, it's a, good it's a good reminder for us to fix our minds on what is true, what is noble, just, pure, lovely, and praiseworthy. And who fits that description better than Jesus? There was mo more hope for a tree chopped down to, to grow again than for you to have life, for you to be forgiven, for you to be righteous. And yet through Christ, that is the reality through the gospel, through faith in him. God remembered us before we knew to even call out to him. He came to us. He's drawn near to us in our trouble so that we might seek him. We might recognize him that he is the Lord of Lords. He is the one who will make us righteous and we can be born again by grace through faith. And by knowing him, we can comfort people who are in any trouble. You don't have to have the exact same troubles to be able to comfort someone in any trouble because we have the God who helps us in all trouble. He is worthy to be rejoiced in at all times. In the depths of Job's suffering, maybe he would have dismissed these scriptures. Maybe you're having a hard time with the trouble you're going through or the trouble you've had to say, you know, right now I'm having a hard time receiving this because I don't see change and I'm not, 
most of the time we answer that, it's with I, I. I'm not seeing what I want to see. I'm not feeling the way. It's kind of centered around us rather than who is God? What has he done? What has he promised? What has he said? And we look at those nail-scarred hands. We look at Christ on Calvary. said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Maybe current troubles or worries over the future or laments over the past, they've blinded you to dare believe or hope that there's real peace or comfort for you in this world. It's not in this world. It's not of this world. It's in Christ who has come to us. So take heart, believer, for the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have come to us in our trouble, that you have given us hearts purified by faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that there is hope that is real. This transforming life that we have available to us through Christ, may we walk in it. May we rejoice in you and rejoice always. Remind us, Lord, when we start complaining, when we complain to others, when we don't really believe that you can help us or there's any hope in our situation, I pray you would do that transforming change of perspective we need to look to you, Lord, to trust you, to place our hope in you, to rejoice always. And thank you for this passage and the reminders and the, the guidance that you provide for us that's so real and needed for each one. I thank you, Lord, that no matter what trouble we faced, no matter what troubles lie before us, no matter how many months or days we have left on, in this world, Lord, we know you have us. You are at hand. You are at the door. Thank you that when we cry out to you, you hear us, that you answer us. And your peace that surpasses all understanding guards our hearts and minds through Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you for your life. Thank you for your love and for your closeness in Jesus' name. Amen.